Well, are we starting? You have to do the... We have to... You have to you're starting. Hi. You start it. I'm Timothy Fitz, and this is Systems Live. God, I hate that. That was Jeff Lindsay. Hater extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to we wanted to try a new thing where we we just talk about what's what's up for like the first minute or two what's what's new and what we've been working on thinking on doing seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, you want to go first? Do I? Well, um, e- no, you go first. Okay, so uh, I I've been using Parse Cloud Code for the first time. That's um, JavaScript, right? It is JavaScript. It's cloud-hosted JavaScript. So what happened was I got a gig with a client. The client is really a producer more than anything else, which is kind of a funny term because they own a sound studio and do what's more naturally referred to as production as well. Um, but he also just has been teaching himself Objective-C and whatnot for the last two years. And so he's... He's new, but still, like, you know, not terrible. It's two years is a pretty decent amount of time to have on your belt. Um, so when he asked me to build a server for his next uh, iOS game, we were looking at technologies, and he was like, hey, if you could use Parse, I know Parse, I've been doing Parse for two years, that would be great. And I looked at Cloud Code, and I was like, oh, this, like... He had been using or you had been using? He had been using okay. Parse. I, I've been using Parse as well, but, but not but as But neither of you would use Cloud Code? Never use Cloud Code at all. You know what? This is... Uh, uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, Michael Carter, he was, he, he actually, he, he built Orbit, Orbited. Do you remember that? No. It was like a twisted thing that made like web sockets work. Oh, yeah. Like he was remember. one of the guys that like actually helped uh, set the stage for WebSocket and, and kind of influenced that um, protocol. And um, when I was doing a lot of real-time stuff, we interacted and, and he was like, He's kind of even back then. He was tired of it. He's like, it's a solve problem and all this stuff. Um, but his his game startup, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but he was basically to, and there's a bunch of these. But it's like, run your game server in JavaScript in the cloud, and that was a specialized thing. And they did a bunch of demos and stuff. But it's funny, you can just use a generic, like parse. Parse is parse is pretty cool. Um... In, in terms of, like, I want to build a... It depends, though. Like, if it's a real-time game, you need, like, a real-time socket connection. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's like, the big thing they don't have right now, and that's mostly fine, because if you're doing a real-time game, like, odds are you're going to use, like, peer-to-peer communications or whatnot, and, like, the devices and the iOS and Android have their own sort of solutions for that. Um, but what Parse does is, like, oh, I just need some data stored in the cloud. Great. Like, you just access the database from your phone and you, it lets you do like oh like a user is locked down to only the rows they created in the database and so great you don't need a server at all so cloud code does a lot more we wanted to do matchmaking um and and uh, async turn-based multiplayer where some of the rules are enforced on the server side so like whose turn it is doesn't get uh corrupted and and the previous iteration was using game center which is terrible uh game center async just has tons of problems mm. Including, like, just dropping games on the floor. Just forgetting about them, not having them anymore, and there's no introspection and no debuggability. Because it's, it's not your servers. You don't have access to the data at the right. end of the day. Um, and it's, like, a free thing, so they don't even care, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they care a little. Um, so Parse Cloud Code's pretty cool. Uh, I, had a, I had a very positive experience in terms of writing the code. In terms of writing automated tests for it, it's a shit show. 
um, because there's no way to run it locally at all. In fact, their develop command means like watch the directory structure or when you change it, deploy. <laughs> so, so continuous deployment is how you do things. So I was writing uh, these automated tests that hit live production server, yeah. live development server. Yeah. Um, and then like I'd get network timeouts and uh, like I'd get throttled by their servers because I'd be making 10 requests a second as fast as possible. And, uh, Didn't you make one like you you ran a loop? You couldn't even. <laughs> yeah, they have background jobs that are allowed to run for. Uh, I don't fifteen remember, minutes. Like, yeah, five or fifteen minutes, something like that. And I wrote one that um, like I'm, I was just doing TDD, and I wrote a bug. Uh, there's no, there's, it's not live. There's no production data, so there was no real user loss. However, the the bug meant that it was writing a row into the database as fast as it could for fifteen minutes, and there's no way to kill a job. So. <laughs> So I push this mistake and I'm like, oh, that sucks. I'll just go press the the. Uh, oh, it doesn't doesn't have that button. And, and then I'm button just, to kill. I'm just off. sitting there watching it use up all my resources and and slow everything down. And I can't run the tests. Like you can't run the tests in parallel because it's writing rows into what need to be cleared for the automated test. So from a from a TDD perspective, it was. They really should. Annoying. They should. More. More hosted services like that should give you like a container version of the environment. Amazon is starting to do some of that. Um, really? A little bit. Amazon? Yeah. They are. They're, they're. What they're doing is they're like tentatively blessing open source versions of their own things as development uh, oh. options. Um, but I. I, hope I guess that, in the same way that Heroku is like, oh well, you can just run a local Postgres service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but with Heroku, it's Postgres, so it's not it's not their sure. problem. But with Amazon, they've got their own databases right. and things right. like that, and and like S three, where the the mechanics of how S three works. And but like Travis CI, I'm so pissed off because it sucks to debug on Travis CI because you have to like push something every time or like do a rebuild or something like that. If they could just give you a like container version of their thing to like test, that would be really nice. But nobody nobody's doing that. Yeah, they're afraid that people will just run those in production, I guess, which seems silly. Like, it's not hard to one make of the, that. One of the first use cases for Docker back when .cloud was still doing the past thing was to give you a local development environment of the of the hosted environment. Yeah, yeah and of course they didn't that. do that because, of course, you don't need to do past like Docker's more more important than that, that little thing. Um, so yeah, you, you've been doing Travis CI recently a lot. You've been dealing with their Docker stuff. You were telling me uh, Yeah, well, just last night. I mean, Travis CI, I, I was trying to get... Um, so, here, you remember, do you remember Git Receive? This is a funny story. Um, so he's showing me github.com slash program slash Git Receive. Uh, so uh, I made this a long time ago. So Git Receive is just a shell script, and right now it's all fancy and fancy bash because I've been learning how to do like real bash but um originally it was like a 50 line script that would set up a user uh that you could do get pushes to and it would run a single script and it would just automatically create whatever repository you push to so that way you could basically um integrate that into your git workflow it becomes like a component that you can use to do like git push and make something happen and show you the output so if you wanted to like set up an interface to run your tests or you know, go to deployment or go to testing or like go do something, anything. You could set up a git receive and then push to it on your server. And it was basically like piggybacking on SSHD and all this stuff. Um, and so I wrote that. I actually used that in Doku, which is that whole like uh, little 
Mini. Also written in Bash. Mini Heroku. Yeah, yeah Mini Heroku around Docker. Um, and eventually, Doku re implemented Git Receive because of the way it is architected. They, it made sense to just not use Git Receive. So now there's like a duplication of that uh, functionality. And then when I started working on Flynn, we started writing a Go version of uh, Git Receive. So it was a standalone SSH server. Uh, so it didn't rely on SSHD, and you had a lot more control, and it was a lot more lightweight. And then it would implement the same interface as Git Receive. It would call like a script. Um, and so that was interesting, and so now Flynn is using that. Um, but when I worked on that, I was like, wow, you could generalize this and just turn it into a really simple uh, SSH uh, in, uh, interface that will just arbitrarily run uh, a single script no matter what you try and execute over SSH. And so I actually have been working on that recently, and that meant that Git Receive is actually useful again because it can be that script that you use in the, uh, the SSH uh, service. So I've split Git Receive D into a standalone SSH thing that will run the old Git Receive bash script. And the cool thing is that same thing can be used for Doku. So I'm like, it's all these components and reusing and all this stuff. But working on Git Receive, um, I was trying to get it running on Travis CI so that it's tested. And I was doing all kinds of weird stuff uh, when I was originally setting it up. I actually run the tests in Docker. So are you becoming like the DHH of Bash? I hope not. Um, I think you're halfway there, though. Uh, is it scary to see that in your future? Are you questioning the decisions that led you to this juncture? See, the funny thing is... Actually, I like Bash. Um, I like it for certain things. But most of the time, I would write Go. You know? Yeah. Um, but but certain things like make too much sense to, to write. And the Doku ecosystem is all Bash. And it's like one of the, that's actually one of the benefits of it. Because it's like that lowest common denominator type of thing. Yeah, we were talking about this over Twitter that that Bash is sort of the the lingua franca of the JavaScript of the Linux world. JavaScript of the Linux world. It is. It is. If you use Linux, you know Bash. Like you, by definition, you've been using a shell. Even if you use some weird shell, I mean, such you a don't, weird you know, shell. You don't it's not really Bash. know Bash. You know Bash as like this thing that you. But use. you can read it. Like you, yeah, can, you can most you can of the time muddle through. I mean, that's, that's JavaScript too. Like I can yeah. muddle through someone else's JavaScript. JavaScript They're using different frameworks. Different. I don't know, what, but I can read it roughly. Actually, so it was a few years ago. Um, I met a couple of people that took Bash really seriously and started thinking of it as a modern. Um, uh, I don't know what that was in reference to. I was thinking about it in terms of a modern programming language. So there's actually, if you look up Bash Modern Programming Languages, there's a couple of good resources. Um, one of them is the link that I tweeted uh, the, yesterday and got like 300 favorites and 200 re, uh, retweets. I don't, I, mean, I guess that's why, but it's just kind of annoying that that's what is a popular tweet. And then um, uh, there's a couple of other resources on like how to use like conventions on using it in a way that you can actually do like software systems because. You get to a point where it's going to be more than just a little script, um, and you need to do do you know actually write good code. Um, but it's weird because it has these features like like I was talking about. It does destructuring assignment. Like you can use read and set a couple of variables, and then uh, pipe standard in a variable. Like for example, um, the dollar sign uh, atrix or at symbol for like all the arguments, and that will actually take all the arguments and assign them to those variables. It was kind of a neat. Uh, feature that it's one of those features that you get in fancy languages like um, 
uh, uh, I was going to say CoffeeScript, but it's in a lot of languages. <laughs> um, anyway, Bash is, you can use it as a, as a, as a anyway, I don't, don't, don't want to talk about Bash. <laughs> I'm sorry that, that we had to talk about that. So, so distributed systems, let's get to the, the meat of today's topic. Where do so you want to start? Is, man, let's, um, you're talking about this, that, that, um, yeah, let's, let's go back in time. Okay. So, so, so. Yeah, I, first I want to just mention, at a minimum, Mojo Nation, Mnet. Um, this is a project that like people don't, not enough people know about it. So in the dot-com boom bust, I believe, no, a lot of this is secondhand. I wasn't really aware of the distributed systems world in, in 2000. Um, a, a bunch of really, really smart people got together, did a startup, uh, it was called Evil Geniuses for a Better Tomorrow. Um, I shared a link to their website in the chat. Yeah, it's the tripod one. It's the, <laughs> nope, that's that's not it. That's a that's a person who was fourteen in nineteen ninety nine. Okay, 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 okay. About their high school. Uh, so, so it was the, the the goal of the startup was to basically build the decentralized future that every cypherpunk ever wished would happen like like uh they wanted to basically build bitcoin and they wanted to build BitTorrent, and they wanted to build a distributed s3 and they wanted to build was it all the same protocol they've got this evil geniuses transport protocol yeah so they were building like a like a i guess the best and analogous thing would be like a tor or a, an internet to uh some sort of i don't know if it's actually anonymous or if it was just peer-to-peer but but a peer to peer message routing protocol um on top of which you could then build higher order services and the idea was like okay so we we, we Whoa, build out pluggable transports i know i know it was it was crazy we com strats <laughs> communication strategies <laughs> <laughs> Comstrats. Wow, it's very uh, military for some reason. Um, so, so what they wanted was like a, a decentralized or semi-decentralized economy. This is 2000. We didn't have the understanding. Like we we didn't know how to build Bitcoin. There were no Bitcoin like happened. good examples of anything like this. Nothing, really. nothing that I knew of. Uh, I mean, peer to peer was was still pretty new at that. That was point. like uh, file sharing stuff, like Kazan. Stuff. 2000 so this would have been like late napster early yeah Kazaar. that was like the closest maybe not even yeah nobody really, really even understood what was going nobody on. understood it and they were trying to build bitcoin and ec2 with the idea that you would be able to run your code in this sort of just pure cloud okay run your code that's what's interesting because all these things are like coming up with protocols and being like file storage and blah 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 all the shit that everybody apparently cares about running code now that's interesting so um, what? Tell me more about this. Well, so that that was the idea. Was was if you if they didn't you could, they didn't build that though, did they? Well, so they tried to. What they got was um, a distributed currency that I think had a central mint. So it wasn't. They did not solve the the mint problem. So it wasn't fully decentralized. And again, like I I never actually used this myself. Um, although uh, I I'm friends with uh, some of the people who worked on it. Um, and then. Uh, then I think they got the file publishing system up and running. So you could pay other people to serve files on your behalf, but I don't think they got CPU up. But the idea was currency and then sell network disk and CPU time. Like the, the and I guess memory. You know, sell the basic resources of computing 
and so you then, could actually so I could rent out my CPU. Yeah, well, so they they didn't get to that point, I don't think, but they but did that was get the, the idea. disc. Yeah, and they so had disc, a disc. Yeah, and with disc, what they did was do they um, have any like an pay, auction pay, system. pay pay marketplaces for that? Like, because there's plenty of distributed file system, peer to peer file systems, but none with money attached, right? Um, Tahoe. Does anybody know of any? Tahoe like kind of had that. Um, with Tahoe, it it wasn't decentralized commerce. Although at this point, you could, I believe, build a Tahoe Laughs cloud where people sell using Bitcoin. Um, uh, but what Tahoe did was, okay, you can use the free cloud, or you can use both the free cloud and the paid cloud to host even more copies of your files, and then. Um, you don't have to trust that they'll have your files because the free cloud might, and you don't have to trust either of them with your data because it's all securely encrypted. Um, and so, so uh, anyway, so just to sum that story up, uh, both Bram Cohen and Zuko Wilcox, the, the authors of BitTorrent and Tahoe Laughs, respectively, which do decentralized file transfer and decentralized file storage, respectively. Um, and now we have Bitcoin. That suddenly made this story interesting. We're close. So we're close. Right now we could sell rented CPU time, but you couldn't trust the host. That's the biggest problem. You can't trust that they'll do your computation correctly, which you don't... I don't think you'll ever be able to trust that, but you also can't trust that they won't look at your private data. Um, and we're working on that problem um, with, uh, what is it, homomorphic uh, encryption, where you convert your code into like a three sat problem and then encrypt the three sat and then have someone else run that. And the idea is it takes encrypted input, does an operation and returns encrypted output and the host can never know what happened. Mm. Um, and I, I, I believe we have fledgling homomorphic encryption, but it's like a thousand or 10,000 times slower. And also it won't ever even have the same um, big O notation uh, order uh, for algorithms because some algorithms that like short circuit and stop can't short circuit because short circuiting would give away information about the algorithm and so you end up with like worst case performance in a lot of cases where you could have done better mm-hmm. so I, it's it's very like I don't know if this will exist in 5 or 10 years but it seems like it will definitely exist at some point whether or not it's the dominant mode of computation or data transfer yeah it's, it's funny how that because you have that um uh, you know, distributed peer-to-peer file storage stuff now, but there's no good system for doing any. Like nobody would actually use it for serious business um, for a number of reasons. But it's kind of interesting because the internet or the web rather was had the same problem. Like it was all just kind of academic until you couldn't do transactions on it because you had like secure information until they figured out the encryption part and came up with uh, yeah, HTTPS um, SSL. So. Then they could finally do um, transactions and stuff on it. It's kind of interesting. You can't do serious business without encryption. Oh, I guess I care a little bit more about encryption now. Um, I mean, not that I didn't care about before. But yeah, but it's becoming it just, more It's more one of those things that like, too many people are into for, like, I don't know, silly reasons. I Yeah, I was into crypto. I mean, like, I learned about the XOR operation when I was 12. and wrote some XOR encryption. I, I, I don't know. I was a weird kid. Well, I mean, a lot of people that go through that. I don't. I just don't get the uh, appeal. I guess it's like it's math, and it's like it's really interesting math to me. But then, like practical cryptography is the most boring thing ever. Like, yeah. I resisted doing like generated passwords per website for way longer than I would care to admit, just because it's annoying. It's really annoying. Yeah. Uh, 
the other, the other thing about uh, the thing about crypto is all the libraries and APIs for it suck. Like they're super complicated and they're not they don't provide like really good abstractions for people to um, kind of use. Uh, well, I guess you know not in every case, but a lot of the the libraries, like the lower level libraries, are just not that user friendly. This is something Joel was talking about a lot. Well, this is this is one of the weird things about encryption is that like the the community of people working on it for the longest time are like, look, just never write new libraries. Only ever contribute to existing libraries because crypto is too hard to get right. Yeah. And that seems, that to me, um, looking at it from like a safety perspective, I'm just like, that seems wrong. It seems like we need to figure out how to safely build new cryptography libraries. We need to start building primitives for all of these things. and like. Well, I mean, you can still have the existing libraries, but build like higher level APIs on top of them. Or, or that, although often... What was that? Well, David Reed's working on Project Rxbase. Do you know about this? Uh, no, I don't. It's actually. like Pi, 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 uh, it's like a Python cryptography. Papyrus? Program. No. Uh, I shouldn't be doing this on the show, but... Yeah, so Jeff is currently reading his email. If you want, I can just start reading some of your email or chat messages out loud. Um, headed over now. Uh, opposite of death metal. Uh, to which you replied, deep. That's uh, seven or eight E's. You're um, reading the wrong stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's somebody's birthday today. Are you going to um, tell Ashley? Happy, happy birthday, Ashley. Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually. That's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the VP of marketing at Parse's birthday today. I found out from Jeff's email. Yeah, thanks for reading my email. But yeah, Parse, uh, Ashley, happy birthday. Uh, cryptography. Um, Python library exposed to cryptographic recipes and primitives. Um, cryptographic standard library. So anyway, I like projects like this because they're they're trying to make uh, you know good. I love that it's called cryptography oh yeah it's, it's not like some dorky weird like punny name it's just no. straightforward super straightforward god these docs look great compared to everything i else don't know why space. people haven't heard about also this just great um, i haven't well, because, heard more about because, it like anyone who makes an alternative uh library for for crypto even if this is based on existing crypto primitives or something existing written ones uh people are still gonna go oh i don't trust it there's just yeah. this huge fear around it because we don't, as a as an like as an industry, we do not understand crypto and we do not embrace it enough. Yeah, and I'm you know partly because I'm like ah crypto, but yeah, I'm always like I want to know just enough that I can uh, build things successfully, but not enough that I'm ever like the senior security expert because right. I don't ever want to be right. responsible. Because I don't, I think it's a crapshoot. I think like every product that's ever been released has an attack surface that could have been exploited if someone just hated you enough, or if someone just spent enough time. So it, it it's a dice roll I don't want to do with my career. Uh, okay. Anyway, so that's cool. Um, cryptography. Da 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 da. Um, uh, we're Distributed about, systems. We're yeah. So. Go Erlang actor model. Well, hold on, hold on, because the so reason why we're talking about Mnet. Uh, was because Solomon, um, yeah, Solomon gave a keynote at GlueCon. So, so, so Solomon hikes. Yeah, uh, is that how you say his last yeah, name? Yeah. So he's the CEO. Uh, he's a founder. I don't believe he's CEO founder anymore. Of uh, Dot Cloud, formerly Dot Cloud, now Docker. Yeah. And he basically like designed 
Docker. Yeah, Docker seemed to be so. So I went to one of the early Docker meetup things where they were sort of unveiling it, and he just seemed like super, super excited about it, and and like obviously the guy who was making it happen, uh, you know, and and a huge team there. But like he seemed to be like a driving emotional force for it. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I like Solomon. He's he's like me, pretty design minded, and you know, thinking about things in a, in a slightly different way. Um, but uh, so he get he was at GlueCon, which is a pretty cool conference uh, last week in Denver, and um, Solomon gave a keynote, and he didn't really. Is it, it was kind of a more of a rant. He like came up with a glass of water in his hand. And just kind of like talked for a little while. And it took a while for him to actually get to the point. But once he got to the point, it was like, oh, this is really cool. So the, the one little bit of text that he had on, on a slide was um, containers all the way down. Which is you know something that I say a lot too. But I, we kind of think the same way in terms of like containerizing everything. Um, but he took it a step further, which was to say, uh, we could and this isn't necessarily what docker is going to try to do or that docker is the answer but it starts you know gets him thinking about it because it's closer to this kind of ideal where you have this like standard primitive of computation that you can kind of take anywhere um so you can see how you might start thinking this way of um making uh computation part of the fabric of the internet so right now the standard internet protocol tcp ip is all about the communications um, but it's not about the actual computation. So the computation between uh, servers happens on servers, and that's not necessarily standardized in any sort of like that's not part of the spec of the internet. Like once once uh, packets get to a host, it's like okay, whatever, do whatever you want. Um, and so from that, you have this like this basically you know everybody's doing everything slightly differently, whatever. Basically, it's not telling you how to do computation. It's you can do it however you want. Um, and so in that way, the internet isn't a, a platform for building applications in the same way that, say, like um, the iPhone is a platform for building an application because it's a it's a specific environment. Um, you have certain APIs. This is what it's like to run on it. And then once it runs on, once it's running there, like anybody can run it on, you know, on any other iPhone or a platform like Android or a platform like, you know, even Heroku or whatever, right? Um, the internet is not an application platform in that sense and it would be really cool if these ideas of platform as a service and all this stuff was um, not just uh, commoditized in the way that Docker is commoditizing it but getting it to the point where we have these uh, we understand the domain well enough that we can actually build standards and pro- standards and protocols around it to actually build an internet that has computation and running of applications built into it um, because then the internet is that becomes an application platform. So that's that's basically what he talked about, and he was you know it's very hand wavy and just like oh this is an idea this is a cool thing we can't you know it's not just us like we can't do it alone we all have to work together, and so that was kind of I was pretty impressed because um, usually usually I'm the one thinking out there like those crazy ideas, um, and uh, so we were talking about that, but that comes back kind of what you know the MX it's, guys yeah, are doing. It's, it's really interesting to me because I feel like um, a lot of development in like distributed systems and database servers and then like all of the development in sort of like JavaScript to server bridges and all these things, they're all about just pushing data from one place to another and pushing computation, usually closer to the data, 
uh, or or pushing computation across an economic boundary. So pushing it to the client instead of the server because I pay for the server. Um, and it's all about just what machine has this. And if it were easy to just sort of move things around, mm-hmm. uh, like we would we would be in a much more optimized place. Whereas right now, like moving a computation from the database to your server to or if a server goes down you have to spin up another one somewhere else like it's it's all the same like all of operations is 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 those kinds of problems and everybody's coming up with like different approaches to solution i think collectively we're getting better at coming up with like a more standard way of thinking about that problem um it's kind of interesting like how hard it is like how long it's taken us to come up with but i guess the idea is if we keep going on this path we might get to a point where we've we collectively understand it well enough that we could do it in a pretty standard way that we could actually bake it into some internet protocols or something that would be really cool that's not anytime soon but um that's kind of an interesting idea of where we could go yeah and well so what we are doing is we're blurring lines that are well within our control um, so like, like a common pattern that we're seeing is JavaScript that runs on both the server and the client. And then it does then run on both, um, like things that are pre-rendered on the server and JavaScript, but then as they dynamically update, get re-rendered on the client, um, and all these patterns, um, you know, I imagine a point at which it's easy to move computation around and we don't have to rewrite in different languages for all these different, uh, platforms. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's holding us back from this is everybody's working on these problems in the stack of their choice, like Node or Go or whatever. But it's people, I mean, you have to use something, but to think about it in a generalized way, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was that was kind of an exciting idea. Um, and then um, it's interesting because the, the, you know, I guess what's implied there is that unit of computation is the container or some concept of, you know, a container, whether or not it's the specifically what a container is today or what container was like LXC containers, but some concept of standardizing the unit of computation that you can move around. Um, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's getting us one step closer. So now the actor pattern. Go versus airline. Mm. Go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. You've used Erlang more than I have. Yeah, it's, and you've used Go more than I have. Yeah, uh, it's like we're peanut butter and chocolate. Oh, um, wait, peanut butter and chocolate. So we're like great together. Reese's pieces. I don't know. F- failed analogy. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I, I was so I, I've written a bunch of Erlang. I've written shipping Erlang that that did high scale distributed system stuff, um, and it was it was. I mean, I learned more in the first six months of writing Erlang about distributed systems than I had in the years before that. Um, and so I, I, uh, I was just recently talking to someone. Someone asked me, what's the safest programming language that you know? So what's the language in which it's the hardest to screw up and which your systems are like the most reliable and it's the least likely to bite you? And, and I came back to Erlang. Like it is... For especially for the the thing that it's targeted at, Erlang does not say we will build uh, the fastest servers or we will build the most distributed servers or we will build the highest scale. What it says is we will let you build things that run forever, that are rock solid, that are stable, and that you won't have to worry about. 
Um, and, and going down that route led them to like just fundamentally different decisions at almost every layer than most other languages and most other frameworks. Um, it's also important that Erlang is like, it's a language, but also there's uh, Elixir, which is another language that's procedural instead of functional and compiles to the same. But then it's also a virtual machine, and then it's also enforced actor model, um, and it's also a protocol for talking distributed systems. So it's it's a bunch of it's things a lot of ideas into one, yeah. and then and then if you look at the standard library, uh, you know it's embracing crash only and supervisor hierarchy, and each one of those things is sort of important it's patterns. To talk about. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's where it became really interesting to me when I saw Go come out because I was like, oh, Go is really similar. Like at the end of the day, I how look is at it those similar? Two, because those they're two, not really that similar. I mean, especially they're both really simple languages. Yeah. That had basically one innovation, which is language level concurrency. Concurrency, like a, a language primitive for concurrency, and the concurrency is a first order issue that you think about a lot. And then you're going to interact with lots of other APIs that have concurrency as a base primitive, um, in a way that the sort of '80s and '90s languages that said nope, concurrency is the operating system, do threads. That's how it happens. Like. The, they sort of ignored the problem and go and airline sort of embrace it and say no this is the natural way of writing programs now this is how it works and you see so then you see the same people adopting either of those two like you're choosing between them because if you're doing high concurrency or high scale uh you have these problems and languages that solve them the first order are what you're going to look for mm-hmm. go I mean, on, all, you know. go actually uses threads underneath but it also does uh, well, so does that yeah i mean like so I, I was just kind of kidding about the threads thing, but um, uh, like there's there's this whole like uh, movement towards the, uh, like single single threaded uh, vented programming started with like Twisted and then Node.js made it really popular. Yeah, it's weird. Um, there isn't really a great reason of why it has to be single threaded. Um, other than the fact that that's sort of what's easiest. Like, most of the Twisted code I've written has been multi-threaded. It just, it uses uh, messages, message passing, and, like, a, a worker pool management system instead of doing, like, threads and shared memory. Yeah, I mean, that's usually the, the, the problem when people do concurrency is when you do shared memory. Because if you, and this was the idea, this was actually one of the first talks I saw on Zero MQ. Um, as opposed to being about distributed systems, it was marketed as a way to do multi-threaded programming easier. Um, using as a uh, kind of an analogy of the actor pattern, and so zero MQ is basically saying uh, treat each thread as an actor, its own like set, its own little computational world that doesn't have any kind of shared uh, state with anything else, and just use message passing using something like zero MQ. Um, and so that was, it's kind of interesting. And, and zero MQ is another sort of like, when I started reading about that, I learned a lot about distributed systems and that, and that kind of actor pattern stuff. Um, but what's interesting is, well, so I, I went to, there's actually a, a meetup here in Austin called the distributed systems enthusiast group. We should go to that sometime. Um, but it was really interesting cause this, I, I went there once and, um, the one time I went, they were giving a talk about the actor pattern. I'm like, okay, I know what the actor pattern is. Or like, you know, I, I felt like I had implemented the actor pattern, like in a general sense of like, oh, if I do a thread and it works with a queue and that's the only way it communicates with anything, that's the actor pattern, right? And I guess at a high level, it kind of is, and that captures some of that kind of like shared nothing message passing kind of architecture. But it turns out the actor pattern is 
uh, more than that. Well, I, I like that phrasing. So, like, I, I feel like actor pattern is sort of like the pattern being reapplied in a bunch of languages. But then actor model is this this more fully fleshed out concept. Oh, I was saying actor so, actor pattern, huh? Yeah, and but that's probably a good way. Paper. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, the actor model is the um, kind of deeper concept. It's kind of neat because what they were trying to make a point of at this uh, at this at this meetup was um, that you can actually use this pattern all the way down this should be the primary means of uh for example communication on the internet as opposed to relying on uh tcp uh you know stateful streams uh of bytes is to actually just you know for example use something like udp as a way for message passing and just deal with the fact that they're going to potentially be unordered and they're you know all this stuff it's not built in uh this reliability stuff isn't really built in um, and then I guess what's more is that you could just kind of go all the way down the stack with the actor pattern. But that's when it kind of got really crazy, or the actor model. Um, so I don't know. I know the actor pattern quite well, but the actor model is something that I haven't quite grokked yet. But it's totally interesting. Yeah, that paper is interesting because it, it places... Is there is there like a canonical paper on Yeah, there's the actor the model paper. The actor model, model paper. If you want to bring that up actor, and throw a link in the model. chat. Um yeah, like so the the paper puts bounds on sort of like live locking and deadlocking and things like that um, because that's that's the actor model's big advantage. You don't have locks, so all of the potential race conditions, deadlocks, live locks can only happen at these like really well qualified boundaries of communication in between processes um, or, or threads or go routines or whatever you want to call them. Um, Do you know who wrote the paper? Oh man, somebody famous. I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Uh, developed by Carl Hewitt, Henry Baker. I don't know any of these people. Maybe I'm just thinking of someone famous who wrote a good paper on it then. Yeah, I don't know if there actually is a like single paper on this. Um, you weren't supposed to listen to what I said and then look it up. That makes me look bad. Um, <laughs> so I'll share, share this link because this is good. So... Um, yeah, so, so Erlang really strictly enforces it. Um, and then that's one of the really interesting uh, contrasts between Go and Erlang. So in Erlang, um, all you can ever write are these, they call them processes. They're super lightweight, though. They're not actually a native process. They have their own heap. So they're 100% uh, their own memory, except for a couple. Uh, like, you, you can break down to C and do crazy shared memory stuff, but, like, that's your, that's your problem mm-hmm. then. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's totally functional. So what happens is each function is like, oh, I got, like, this thing happened, and here's my state. Do something and return the next state. Uh, that's it. So, like, everything is really, really well structured in terms of what it could possibly modify. And so you can make tons of guarantees about, like, oh, this process only knows this tiny set of information and therefore can only do those few things. So it's like object-oriented programming on steroids um, because you know object oriented programming the intention of message path like the idea of message, message yeah, yeah and it wasn't even having returns or anything like that like you wouldn't actually there weren't like actual functions I love how so many concepts started out with these like you know really great intentions and then like the community just totally bastardizes everything like object oriented programming and uh, what was another um, uh 
a lot of the concepts around object-oriented programming, like like public and private, like all that stuff, classes, inheritance, inheritance. Um, I love that people like composition over inheritance is like starting to become a really common, at least meme. I don't yeah. I don't know that people are actually doing it reliably, but um, I'm I'm seeing people say that more and more, and that's that is just so true. It's just so true. I, I use inheritance more and more sparingly, and when I do it, it's it's rarely like textbook inheritance. It's usually like, oh, this is just the most convenient way of splatting out whatever set of functions into five different places. Right. So, uh, and and this this uh, article uh, actually points out the um, CSP model, which is what Go's channels are more inspired by. So there's like they're similar but different. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. I always thought, and this was kind of a naive way of thinking. Can you is, explain channels and go routines real quick to contrast? Or, or you can say what you want to say and then do that. Well, okay, so a go routine is just a lightweight thread. Um, so it uh, doesn't have any of the same, like pro- like we're talking about, properties of knowing when, no, you can being able shared to memory. kill it. You, yeah, shared memory. Um, uh, and... Uh, so they're lightweight threads. Uh, you don't know. Uh, you, you, there's no like mechanism for um, supervision built in. You can't kill uh, a Go routine once it's started, um, unless you build in a mechanism for it to do it. And the way you have um, Go, so it was Go is designed to basically have these Go routines and do actor pattern style uh, programming, which was have these Go routines running and then use channels as a way for them to communicate and try and avoid shared state. So, so channels are message passing as a built-in language-level primitive. Like, they have their own syntax. Go routines also have, like, a syntax to start them. Like, right. I mean, they're, they're, they're effectively cues, but with certain semantics that lets you use them in certain powerful ways. And so, actually, when I was using GeoVent, I kind of, uh, in Python... Um, it's a very similar paradigm, and I and there's actually a, a couple of people that were like, "Oh, well, you can implement like the actor model using the, they would just have a queue inside, like an actor pattern, implement a, a, a queue object with a, a G event. Uh, God, what do they call them? Green greenlets or like whatever lightweight green threads, green threads. Um, so, so Go has a, those two things built in, and it was designed to be used that way. And it's kind of interesting to me because it seemed like uh, it, it, it afforded more, uh, gave me more flexibility because if I wanted to do shared state, if I wanted to be a, you know, a dick to myself, I could do shared state. Um, well, it's, it's shared by default. You have to try to not accidentally right. share state. Um, and then uh, I can use Go routines separately from the message passing mechanism. Whereas the actor model, when implemented in like Erlang, um, you have to use message passing. Um, you have to use it that way. And your actor or whatever is always, is always has that baked in. Yeah, so like one of the... Which is, you know, for the best, but it's a completely different way of thinking about programs. Yeah, it's, it's weird because at, at a glance, Go and Erlang look so similar. Like, oh, lightweight threads, oh, a built-in communication method, it's baked into the language. See, those are, they're actually so different. But they're incredibly, incredibly different. Um, and it kills me, it kills me that the, the valuable lessons learned in Erlang are not even reproducible in Go. Like, you can try really hard... 
to, to make a sort of actor model, but it's brittle in the sense that every library you interact with, including the standard ones, won't respect whatever your conventions are and will break all of the properties. And it's one of those things where, like, if you have 80% of your things in actors, odds are all of your problems are going to be in the other 20%. Like, it's, it's not actually going to give you that much of an advantage um, because you can't, just, you can't just sit there and go, I know this actor can't affect this other thing. You're like, well, I'm, I'm hopefully it can't, but maybe it mm-hmm. can. And you're back in the sort of, like, threads thing where you're like, well, I tried really hard to not have any race conditions, but there's probably a couple. Right. Um, and then the other thing that kills me is you just cannot build the supervisor hierarchy. So, so in Erlang, um, there's this concept called crash only. Um, and it's, it's pretty radical. It's the idea that you shouldn't use exceptions um, and that you shouldn't check for error conditions in general. Um, so, so very anti-go um, and, and very counter to most people's experience. And the idea is that if you have an exceptional, an exceptional circumstance, something's gone wrong. You are now in an indeterminate state. You are not sure exactly what's happened. If you're trying to recover anything, you're probably going to have some... Yeah, like let's say, oh, like a, I get a file I.O. write error. I'm just going to retry in a second. Well, maybe you got the file I.O. write error because your file I.O. write is adding 4K to the disk every time and you're out of disk space. And so your process just like forever loops, screwing itself over. Um so that in the Erlang model, what they say is, no, no, no. Well, as soon as you have any fault whatsoever, anything that you didn't uh, plan for. So, okay, if writing to disk is going to fail regularly, maybe that's something you handle explicitly, but those are rare. So anything you didn't plan for is going to crash the whole lightweight process. And then the supervisor hierarchy is this idea that you have reusable patterns for what to do when processes crash. So, so what, are, what are those patterns, by the way? Uh, man, I wish I could remember all of them. So, like, the most obvious one is, like, keep N alive, So uh, where N is often one. So, hey, I have this thing that's super important. If it dies, restart it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what the supervisor hierarchy gets is it says, I'm going to subscribe to a process's sort of life, um, life cycle change events and reliably guaranteed by the, the sort of airline kernel you're going to reliably get a notification that it died. Now, now, if it dies on another machine because the hardware died or the network link died or something got severed, you'll get that notification after like a network timeout, but you will get that notification. It works even in a distributed situation. Um, so then you can do other patterns like, oh, if this thing died, spin up the guy who knows how to uh, sort of check for state and fix things. So um, like, like a really common pattern with databases, there's the check script. Uh, or file systems, there's the file system checker. So you could have a checker that checks things and then spins up the real process again. And then you, you'd have maybe an outage, but maybe you also have like a buffer process in front of it that handles that. Um, or, or maybe you fail over. Maybe what you say is if this guy ever dies for whatever reason, we're going to start talking to a different computer or a different uh, a standby. You can do N plus one with a hot failover. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all actual patterns that you can that are kind of baked in? Yeah. Yeah, these are all. Uh, so some of these are some of these are patterns that I built myself instead of them being baked in, but they're fifty, hundred lines. Like it's so mm-hmm. easy to just smash out these patterns and sort of wire up hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Um, How often do you get actual like deep hierarchies? Because I can imagine like most situations, it's like oh, you have a supervisor and then a process, and does that super? How often do supervisors have supervisors? Um, it's somewhat common. Um, I'm trying to think of a concrete example. So what we built at um, InView that I spent many, many months on uh, was a replacement for the chat system 
It was sort of this hybrid key value store pub sub. You could subscribe to a small blob of state and reliably get the current state and then all updates to it in real time like as as pushes over a custom wire protocol or over uh, long polling HTTP. Um, and so we, we had a couple sort of routing nodes. And if the routing nodes ever lost how to route or who to route to, they were worthless. Um, so the supervisor hierarchy said, like, basically, if a routing node dies, and this has been a while, so this might not actually be what shipped, but if, like, a routing node dies, then start uh, spinning up a new routing node, but also, like, go find all the things it needs to route to and reconnect those. Um, and then the routing node supervisor is the supervisor to the supervisor of all of the, the backend sort of state blobs. Um, so if the whole box died, the higher uh, supervisor would know to spin up a new supervisor that would know to spin up all of the backend queues as well. Right. Uh, or you call them queues, the, the, the state blobs. I mean, it's interesting that you have these same patterns in, in like operations and system design, but not you know, in Erlang, but they're like these concepts like, you know, like the simplest thing is like a process supervisor or something like that. Yep, like um, on it or whatever. Yeah, and, and you have these concepts and, and you end up doing stuff very similar to what you were saying, like if this node goes down, I'll spin up another node, you know, and if that, uh, you know, monitoring node goes down, something else will spin that up, you know. And so you, it's it's interesting that you have a lot of the same patterns in, in uh, you know, out in real world distributed systems. Um and it's also interesting that it's the same, like, if you could model your entire system in Erlang, like, it's kind of nice. Yeah. But it would be nice, and this is kind of the ideas that I'm playing with in Flynn, is the idea of taking those patterns and then making them something that you could use in a, you know, kind of, um, you know, stack-neutral way outside of it. So, like, at the, basically, like, at the scheduler, scheduler level, um, sort of, like, maybe... Uh, yeah, I mean, it has, I'm trying to bake in a lot of those concepts. <laughs> if this fails, you know, you can start this process. If it fails, restart the process and have all that kind of... All right, so here's problems. another one to steal from Erlang then. That okay. Go also doesn't have. So Erlang um, is designed by Sony, or designed by Ericsson, not Sony Ericsson. I don't know why I always want to say that. Um, it's designed by Ericsson. They make uh, giant machines that do routing for telephone calls and text messaging and things like that that have to have as many nines up time as they can possibly build. So many Super, nines. super expensive. Um, so they have machines in the field that have been running for like decades and have never been rebooted and have never been down, including software updates. So part of the idea was they have to build this language that can allow software updates. Now, software update was like a once a year or once a quarter kind of thing, not this sort of modern, really uh, flexible, it's continuous iterative. point of the world. Um, but, but they had these heavyweight updates that could be applied without any downtime. And the way they did that was, one, they relied on the supervisor hierarchy. So they said, okay, we can, we can spin up the new code in parallel with the old code and then crash a bunch of our processes and have new ones spin up using the new code. And if you design your entire system so that anything can crash and the system handles it, then you can come up with an order to crash things in that uh, results in the least amount of disturbance to things mm-hmm. or, or like like a, a gradual crashing of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's an awesome pattern. And then the other thing they did was... I mean, that's sort of an ideal for people when they're setting up like load balancers and stuff, right? Yeah. This is yeah. a pretty common pattern at an operations level. Yeah. Very rare pattern at a programming level. Yeah. Um, but again, this is this is stuff that like really bothers me about the whole DevOps thing. Is that it's it's most DevOps is very one sided. Like yes. it's like oh your hey, or your ops. Uh, well, I mean there there's that, but the idea that 
the whole concept was to try and I mean, it was more than is an organizational thing, but uh, the popular idea is um, uh, developers and and ops people kind of are sharing. Like ops people act more like developers, and developers act more like ops people. The thing is, though, it's usually just the first one where like it's just the operators they act more like developers, but not really. Um, and then developers just continue being developers, and they don't really think about operations as much at all. So that's that's one of the things that bothers me. Um, it's cool that developers in systems like Erlang, they have to deal with it because it's built into the language. Um, and it's not so much in, in Go, but um, usually people that are working in concurrency in Go act, know those other, just because of the culture, the types of people that use Go. Um, yeah. But see, that's that's the world that I want, is one where we're sort of like, we're all on the same page. Like, you know, developers know operations stuff, system level distributed systems and operators know how to write you know software that automates their job I want that world I, that's that's one of the pitches for continuous deployment I get tons of people in operations pushing back like this would be so much work for me and I'm like no 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 you don't understand if, if you guys adopt continuous deployment if your company adopts continuous deployment in two years every developer will have an operational amount of knowledge that you cannot believe like every developer will know this is going to run in production. What does that mean? What are those machines? What what are they running? How does that look? How's that different from my own machine? All these things that usually people don't understand at all. They learned once in the first week of being at a company because that's the spin up process, and then they forgot about it because it it doesn't affect them because you've been sort of insulating them from those problems. This gives you a real time feedback of like I just deployed this. If there's errors, that's my fault. Exactly. Exactly. That personal responsibility. And that's why I don't like... So people make this continuous delivery versus continuous deployment distinction, where delivery means you automate everything and it's push button to deploy, but you only push that button every once in a while. Um, Where that might be daily, or it might be weekly, or it might be with new features. And it's like, no, no, no. That gets you most of the work of building the infrastructure and almost none of the gain of like this tight closed feedback cycle of everything I do is live right away, so everything I do has to work right away, which gives you this always shippable, everything's ready, everything can go out, um, and then you get fast. So you're saying that continuous delivery, continuous deployment, um, that kind of culture actually breeds better DevOps uh, culture and understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Because every dev has to do a little bit of ops. They have to, at a minimum, know when... They have to get an ops person to do something for them. Like that's the bare minimum. You cannot do development in a company if you think like, oh, this needs a new package. I'll just deploy it right now. Like, no, you can't do that. So uh, that was one of the other topics that we had was this idea of. Oh, before we do one, one more thing about Erlang uh, that I love because each function takes like the previous state and whatever happened and then returns the new state. Um, you can live update running processes. Um, it'll just wait, like it gets a message and responds to it, and then your process is like there, but it's not doing anything, and then it'll load the new code, and it'll run a migration function that looks like a schema migration, basically. It takes the old process's state blob and returns a new state blob that's valid for the new code. What is, uh, uh, in Erlang, what is that state blob? Uh, it's it's whatever you want it to be. It's like, it's a dictionary, basically. Okay. A dictionary of dictionaries. Um, it's it's their their entire it's it's your process. So like it's so your, it's your heat. That's actually baked in is this concept of when I want to uh, uh, kind of transition from an old process to a new process that might have a different way of dealing with state. It actually gives yeah. you the option of running a uh, migration step 
to migrate that state. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and so in that sense, I like you think of Erlang as a database as much as it is a, a programming language, and they and they work sort of the same way. And having like schema changes built into your language is just amazing. So cool, and it lets you do these like hot reloading things you would want to do otherwise. Um, I imagine that the next generation operating system will be will have that sort of feature baked into it, because we're going to see like the the number of patches you have to do to stay up to date on security and things like that is just going to go more and more and more and more. And time to patch is going to become the key factor. And the only way to get better at that is things like case splice, where you can hot patch live running servers. Mm-hmm. And so either we're going to figure out how to case splice everything forever, make it cheap or free and not run by a company, since that's sort of a deal breaker right now, or we're going to build like a new primitive or new language that does this for us. Can you imagine if you just subscribe to updates and your kernel is just randomly updating all the time? You don't have to worry about big OS updates. OSs can start to be continuously deployed. Like the number of problems that go away, it's amazing. It's a future for somebody to mention core OS. Uh, is that the Lisp one? Core OS? Oh no, I'm thinking. I'm thinking generic. Which, which is no. Core OS again? Core OS is the um, operating system that's designed for running containers and does automatic kernel updates. Yes. Oh, someone mentioned it. Core OS. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Is that based on case splice or are they doing their own similar thing? I don't actually know. Um, they might be doing their own version of that. They've got some well-known kernel hackers working on it. Um, but yeah, it was, and it's funny because they actually were very inspired by Chrome, basically. Yeah. Chrome's a great model. I, I Not only for security, but like for the advancement of standards on the web, right? Yep. It's like how quickly is it that like we can have new standards you know and, and have them in your browser? You know why that is? Why? Well, one is Google spends a lot of money on it. But two is they do continuous deployment of desktop software, which Imview did as well. Like, it's totally possible. I don't, I don't know why people think it's just a web thing. Um, but, like, that's, that's, my, that's almost my full-time gig now is just teaching companies how to do continuous deployment because it is the fucking future, man. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have time for that other thing that we talked about? That's... I mean, we can always run. We can always run long. Um... Wait, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about? We're at we're at an hour right now. Uh, you you were talking about um, was it Onsen engineering? Oh, Onsen. Oh man, engineering. Uh, yeah, Onsen. Onseniers. Um, I almost want to save for another podcast. No, no, no. I'll, I'll at least do a little bit. So, um, pitch it. Yeah. So I've been working with uh, Joshua Kiriowski. He wrote Refactoring to Patterns. He runs a consulting firm. Um, really, really smart dude, uh, has seen just a lot of the industry in general, um, from his position of running a consulting firm and and getting to just sort of work on a bunch of different projects. And, uh, and he also does a lot of sort of like optimizing pitches, how you, how you best market and sell good ideas to people who maybe or maybe not want to adopt them. Um, and so, so he sat down a couple of years ago and just said, like, look, there's similar to the Agile Manifesto era, there is a lot of interesting new development happening right now um, that doesn't fit under Agile. Like, Scrum is over. Scrum is now not the best thing to start with. Um, even though everybody does it, but that's even, just oh, because. People, people do the worst. I yeah, don't yeah, even, yeah. oh, man. I, yeah, do not adopt Scrum and get rid of Scrum if you can. That, that is, like, the gold standard advice now. Um, 
so things things like Lean and Kanban, and not Lean Startup, but like Lean Software and Kanban and continuous deployment and value mapping and flow and all of these ideas don't really have like a consistent banner under which they can they can live. Um, and like Lean and Lean Startup are so focused on like how do you just ship crap right away and like learn from users and, and, and abuse them in all these ways and have all these like negative connotations and like there's a lot of really interesting material there. I'm not saying that Lean Startup is bad and I would definitely use the principles, but like it's not everything. It's missing some, some fundamentals in the story. And so, uh, you know, he was looking for like what's, what's the commonality between it all and um, became really inspired by uh, Ayakoka, the, the, the former CEO of, what is it, Alcor? Uh, an aluminum company. I think it's Alcor. Um, uh, and they, he, he was hired as CEO because they were a sinking ship. And on day one, he came in and he said, look, our number one priority is safety. Because safety is the precondition for success. So that's like the heart of this idea, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, that's that right there is the whole one. Safety is the precondition for success. You explain safety. Safe. So that's that's where it became crazy to me. So I'm I'm hearing this and I'm just like, okay, safety's boring. Like that's that's my internal monologue. It's like I don't care about safety. Safety is boring. Like yeah, you should be safe, but whatever. That's not interesting. What does safety mean? So so that's where uh, safety is is harm reduction, preventing harm, preventing injuries. So you look at like a hard hat. A hard hat prevents you from injury. In the event of a failure, a thing falls on your head, a hard hat will prevent you from dying. A hard hat is the admission that something might fall on your head. Failures happen. And it's the idea that we will think about what failures might happen and plan for them and as an industry figure out what is like the sort of like correct amount of safety gear. Okay, but in software... So in software, what is an injury? Right. So an injury can be... I pushed a broken commit and it broke production. But an injury can also be I'm working in a crappy code base and it hurts. I go home two hours early and I'm frustrated at night. Those emotions, we say this all the time. It, this, this code's so bad it hurts me. I'm in pain. We, we use this metaphor at a fundamental level and it's real. So like it's, it's not it's, physical pain. It's, it's not physical and it doesn't have stabbed. an influence. Although sometimes on it is. I mean, I mean people, people who are overworked will get RSI yeah, yeah, repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are actual physical RSI and stress, like and they do affect your actual physical... And you can't ignore them. People want to ignore them and be like, oh, it's your personal responsibility to not be too stressed and not... No, 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 no. The company has to own it. That'd be like telling a, a person working on a bridge it's their responsibility not to fall off. No, you get safety equipment. So, I mean, this is sort of related to like the concept of work-life balance. It is. It is because work-life balance is a safety issue. Um, but it's also related to deployment practices and software practices and, and being open and honest about failure. Um, I wonder if there's a better word than safety to describe this. Because it's rooted in safety, but safety has, uh, I think, maybe the wrong like imagery that I think, like, in order for people to grok it, there might be a better... It is. That's one of the interesting ones. So, so Joshua's been calling it onzen. Um, mostly because it means safety in, in Japanese, but people don't know that sure. because people's initial reaction to safety is it's boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's not true. People in startups, people who are like the aggressive early adopter crowd are like, oh, we don't care about safety. We live our lives. We take risks. We're on the edge. Um, but that's silly. Like if you build a, a, a company, a company that has a culture of safety and that has an organization of safety and that has proper the procedures of safety so you know you have a continuous deployment that works beautifully that that prevents all of your broken changes from going out and if you do break something you know you have the etsy model where you win an award 
uh, for breaking production the worst that year. Like an award, and people celebrated. Like, yeah, you did that, and our process wasn't good enough, and we fixed it, and it was awesome. We learned so much. So celebrating the mistakes. To some degree, yeah. As long as you have mechanisms to and not a, fix so, them. Exactly. So, so the, the, the interesting part to me about Anzen was this, the recognition that it's a safety issue. Like, okay, that could just be a metaphor. Like, I'm, I'm just talking metaphor. That's not an interesting innovation. What is interesting is that that metaphor holds. In the same way that, like, lean manufacturing held as a metaphor for software, and you could learn things from lean manufacturing, the safety industry is five times older, six uh. times older. So there's hundreds of years of safety practices that we can borrow that we can from. borrow from, and they work perfectly. So um, what are some examples? Uh, that that's a good one. So so the the first example uh, and and sort of the meta example is the the Golden Gate Bridge. So the Golden Gate Bridge, built during the Great Depression, horrible time to decide to build a a, a bridge, would be nowadays a billion dollar project in in today's dollars. At that point in time. For every million dollars spent on a project, they expected one death in construction. That's the level of, of expectation here. Uh, and it was like a $33 million project. So they literally, they went into this project knowing they're going to kill 33 people, which is crazy. Um, and, and the uh, chief architect said, uh, actually, we're going to try and have no one die. We're going to make this the first project where no one dies. He was not successful, sadly. But what he said was safety will be like the top concern. Um, and so they built the first safety net. There'd never been like a safety net on a bridge project before. So they had the safety net. Um, it like it single-handedly saved like 17 people uh, fell off. They were the first, uh, the, and those people became known as the halfway to hell club. Huh. Like the, it became a thing. It got to the point where people were jumping into the net for fun. That 17 does not count the people who jumped into it for fun. Um, they they uh, they required jumping hard into the net for fun. Yeah, off the Golden Gate Bridge. Can't even imagine. Um, they were the first uh, bridge building to have harnesses, at least in the United States. So people were strapped in, and like they had like these big burly buff dudes who are like, "I've been doing this for twenty years. I'm not going to do it." They fire them on the spot. Anyone who wouldn't take safety seriously was out. Um, they had one horrible accident where uh, scaffolding collapsed and killed ten people, but they ended up with eleven deaths instead of the thirty-three. So it was a huge, huge success. But what was not expected. I don't even think it was expected by the, the people who built it, although I'm not sure. Maybe the architect saw it. Um, was that they got it done on time, unlike every other construction project. They, they were ahead of schedule. They, they totally nailed it. And why? Because when someone dies, that is incredibly, incredibly disruptive. When there is a safety incident, you go slower. It's not just oh, that person died and we had to spend a week dealing with like all of the fallout. It was, that person died and now everyone is 10% slower thinking, People that oh, know him might even like not come in or whatever, like just even Even six down. months later when everyone has gotten over it, everyone is working slower because they know in the back of their minds, I might die from this. Now that is an extreme example, but that pattern happens again and again. So as soon as this, as the safety metaphor sort of clicked, what I saw was everywhere I've been happy as an employee has had an environment where I was safe to be innovative. And what that means is I could try new things and fail in the sense that they would have maybe negative customer impact or maybe they just wouldn't work and I would have spent my time incorrectly, air quotes. Um, but learn from that. I was safe to do those things. I could do those without personal injury. 
And therefore, I could do them repeatedly and I could learn better and faster and therefore I was, I was happier. And so everywhere I've been that I really enjoyed it, I was safe. And everywhere I've been that I haven't enjoyed it, I was unsafe. There was some major issue that prevented me from feeling safe to do the things I wanted to and I was sitting there just frustrated. Like, I can't get things done. Things are going wrong. I'm spending my days doing just bullshit work. Why? Because things are unsafe. So that's, that's on Zen. And then just stealing from the safety. So, so one of the things they talk about in, in um, safety is latent conditions. Um, so it's a really big problem in safety to have like, oh, you stubbed your thumb on a machine because you're an idiot. Like that's every line manager's initial thought is right. if you screwed up, that's weird. You're the only one who did that. It's your fault. And what the safety field teaches is you need to look at the latent conditions. So what were the things that led to an environment where this was easier? You don't even have to say led to causing it. Um, and when you start to sort of zoom back and look at the system, like how can you improve the system instead of the people? Sort of the five whys. It's sort of the five whys, but latent conditions is just this idea that like it, it predates it and it's not quite so specific, but it gets at the, the heart of it, which is uh, what was the root cause? But root cause is this idea that there's just one. Um, latent is this idea that there are, the system has the potential for failure in the future and the system could be safer, could have less potential failure in the future. Um, so like a guy who's not wearing his safety goggles gets stabbed in the eye. Well, is he an idiot for not wearing his safety goggles? Actually, maybe all the goggles are in disrepair. Why are they in disrepair? Well, because like the upper management doesn't actually care about safety. They just want to minimize legal damages. Or they're happening, they happen to use a tool that was very sharp and everywhere and yeah. increase the chances of puncturing your eye with some... So that's onzen. Like, and, and, and to I me, mean, people, people that are familiar with testing... And it's very, I think they would get that safety metaphor, Mm -hmm. right? Because when you write tests, you feel safe to just like change the code. But the idea, I think, is to take this to, uh, you know, the greater kind of cultural level. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so so what what I've found is that just rephrasing everything in these terms of safety and injury makes people immediately get it. So, So a lot of people talk about continuous deployment like, oh, it's faster. Oh, it's it's more productive. It's better. You can do lean startup with it because you can get all these. Ten- no, 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 no. It's none of that. It's safer. You're not in a position where you can't deploy. You're not in a position where you've been working for six months and then you deploy and things go horribly wrong. At the end of the day, continuous deployment means less stress. It makes you happier. It makes your life simpler, and it means you get injured less. That's the continuous deployment that I teach, and that's what I bring to people. It's just it's just a different way of looking at it, but it's the right way. Well, it's funny because a lot of people who would be um, afraid of of continuous deployment want uh, one way they might phrase it is that it's too dangerous, which is sort of the opposite of safety, or they think that moving slow is safer. Yeah, um, and so that's kind of true, but it's it's maybe a, a a short-sighted way to think of it. Yeah, it's one of those things where actually, like, moving slow is a is a sign that something's wrong. Um, so, like, it's it's hard to see it in small examples. So, like, Facebook has these like two and three week developer boot camps. I don't know anything about the content in them, but that's a smell to me. Um, it's a smell that something's wrong, or or could be wrong. You know, maybe it's great education; it's all generic, but maybe it's also like here are the ten things you shouldn't screw up. Um, and then like taken to an even more example, um, I've heard 
that MySpace had a six-month period before you could get commit access to MySpace. <laughs> Can you imagine that? So their, their operations, their VP of operations ran their engineering department, and this was sort of the 04, 05, 06 bad days of software development. Um, and so they'd hire a bunch of people, and then it'd be six months before they were allowed to do anything. They had to shadow, they had to learn, they had to take these classes. And why? Because they were just afraid of all changes. And when you're afraid, you make bad decisions. And when you're afraid and you slow down and you go too slow, you're now vulnerable to all these other problems. So you want to eliminate fear. This is sometimes going. Sometimes it's fine to just say that it's a smell. So like, oh, we're going slow because we're afraid because we've never done this before. That's fine. We've done this three times and we're still going slow and we're still afraid. That is not fine at all. You're going to ask me a question, right? Well, I, I forgot what it was, Stop but um, uh, yeah, it's it's. I was thinking about people being conservative and fearful, and you know all that stuff. It's sort of interesting to 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 give it a more. Uh, it it might actually be helpful to phrase it in those terms for those people to say that this is safer. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And what I see um, repeatedly is that people sit down and they do the conservative thing instead of the safe thing. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, okay, I want to do this thing because I think it's risky, so I'm going to not do it for four months and then do it. That actually makes it even riskier. So in the end, you're not being safe um, in your conservatism. Yeah. If, you were, if you're just saying, okay, we want to build this software with the lowest chance possible of screwing up, what you would do is very different from what is commonly considered conservative. Conservative really just means you're doing it the way we did it 10 years ago. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of I, that, that pattern. I don't know. The, the whole like lean and agile and, and all these kind of like things with a common pattern. I'm not sure if that's... Um, like I always have been trying to figure out some sort of higher level systems way to talk about it. Um, and it, and that's led me in a different direction where it's more about like feedback loops and you know, all yep. that stuff. Um, and I guess, uh, so this is a completely new way. Like I've never thought about it like this. And so that's kind of a, a neat way to, it's a feedback. It is a feedback loop though that I see time and time again. Like the, the Iacocca story is that he, gave his personal cell phone number out to every employee. And he said, look, if you ever see any problem with safety, call me and I'll fix it immediately. Um, and, you know, like it took, I think like a month or two before anyone called him. And someone called him and was like, hey, like a conveyor belt's down and we have to like hand move things from, from the first conveyor belt to the third one. And I think I might hurt my back. And he's like, okay, I'll deal with it. Hangs up, immediately calls the line manager, says like stop work completely, fix this, make things safe. We'll figure out what went wrong and, and make it you know, not happen again in the future. Um, and that just triggered this reaction of ground-level feedback coming back to him about safety issues. And that feedback cycle was amazing. And the only way he got that was by sticking to his principles of safety when he got a phone call from someone on the ground and trusting them. And, and having this, like, that trust feedback and we do something about it cycle. Now suddenly, as a ground employee, I go, oh, hey, I said that thing and then things got better. I'm going to do that more. And other people see it. Yeah. And suddenly you get that bottom-up thing that everyone wants but no one knows how to get. So when, so I, I don't know if you hear this very often, 
but I think it was at Twilio where I heard it used, actually used, but um, continuous improvement. Yes. Um, Kaizen is the uh, Japanese word for it, and it comes from uh, lean manufacturing and Toyota as well. Um, With continuous improvement being the idea that nothing is ever right. You know, it's right. It was right for then when it happened, and now it's wrong, and we can always make things better. Um, and so, sort of acknowledging that you don't. We like to talk about failure a lot. We like to say that failed. How are we going to prevent that from failing in the future? But at the end of the day, if you if you don't label it failure, it's just room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and continuous improvement just says always be getting better, even if you think that you're not screwing up right now, that you could still do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I advocate a lot of just pick a ratio. 80-20, 70-30, whatever, and then just be like, look, every programmer gets to spend, you know, every employee at the company gets to spend one day a week improving their own life, improving their own work, improving their own whatever. Just work on whatever you want one day a week, make your life better. Uh, and then just step back and you'll end up with like continuous deployment, you'll end up with lean software, you'll end up with all those things once people have the freedom to do it and the time to do it. As opposed to the normal thing, which is let's crunch for six months and then try and spend a week making things better. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that ties into this, like autonomy, right? Yeah. So control structures. So, I mean, this is it's a, it's a pretty complex issue. No wonder it's kind of hard for people to achieve this because there's there are a lot of uh, uh, like facets to it, like the control structure, and you can have like a like a a manager, CTO, or like founders that um, have a certain personality that leads to a control structure that inhibits actually achieving these sorts of things, um, and then they might not even realize it. So it's kind of interesting how difficult it is to actually achieve this, right? Totally. Totally. Uh, yeah, I hear, uh, I hear a common piece of feedback from, like, uh, C-level executives and, and sort of high-up management, which is like, oh, people get upset with me because I'm not doing anything about a problem, and then they also get upset that they don't feel like they have autonomy. And it's like, look, if I'm not doing something about a problem and you don't feel like you have autonomy, go do it already. Yeah. And I, I see, like, one, that's kind of true. Like, people, people sort of need a kick in the pants to yeah. go do something. But two, that's the perspective of a person who's not fostering continuous improvement and who's not fostering bottom-up decision-making. And it often, like, if you actually start doing, like, a five whys and look for the root cause, what you'll find is that what they say they want is bottom-up decision-making, but if anyone makes a decision that they think is wrong, they go in and they micromanage it away. And that, I'm going to go and fix the problem sort of attitude leads to people go, oh, I'm just going to wait for Mr. Boss Man or Mrs. Boss Gal to, to tell me what to do. So then, uh, uh, like, like to contrast that, um, something I saw Eric Reese do, which I have never seen anyone else do, at least at least explicitly, um, you know, we would hire people that didn't know what Lean Startup was because he hadn't coined the term yet. And we were doing this proto version of it, and they would come in and they would go, oh, no, no, I don't like that. I want to do things the way that I do them normally. And so he would say, okay, well, let's, let's split up into small groups and we'll work on a project for a month or something. And each small group will have their own project and basically have full autonomy. And you, you don't have to do these practices. I think you're going to screw up. Here are the ways I think you're going to fail, but we will support you in your endeavor. And if you learn a better way of doing things, we'll learn from that. And if you fail the way that we failed, you'll have that basically needed prerequisite experience and mm-hmm. wisdom to then see the light of uh, what you know at the time when we were talking lean, lean software, lean. We yeah, were just yeah. calling it lean. Like we didn't have words for it. So it's like uh, 
uh, yeah, go for it. You know, this is probably what you're going to run into. And they weren't, it's not like they would be fired either. It's not like, oh, you spent a month learning that that was the wrong way to do things. We gave you the rope to hang yourself on. It's not that at all. It's, look, you're safe to try things, even trying the old bad way that Mm -hmm. we know is bad. You're safe to do things that I know or I think I know are wrong because that's the sort of environment you need to foster this creative discovery and continual improvement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, if, if you were to say like, you can't do that, that's not a safe and you know, you're going to be going, I mean, that's kind of, again, comes back into the autonomy and people sort of like being trained to being told what to do. Yeah. And then you need some base level sort of kernel that keeps everyone safe from, from negatively impacting each other too much for the business to, to afford. But other than that little kernel, um, you know, like we would say, you have to work within the framework of our continuous deployment pipeline. If you want to drop code two weeks later, like you'll have problems. And if you cause problems, you'll have to deal with them. Um, but and, and your tests have to pass because that's a basic primitive that we need. But eh, you can go do kind of whatever you want. That didn't last. Uh, that did not uh, survive after Eric left, that culture. Um, that, was, that, that company is 10 years old now and has like phases of sort of evolved into a different hardcore evolved and so it's it's weird to talk about it as like an example of lean startup because it's definitely not one anymore from my understanding and i don't work there so i don't have the insider perspective but and you think that that i mean i would imagine you think that's a, a top-down thing like it's not that that people naturally will try and move out of that um yeah yeah i, I would say it, i view it was a top-down Movement. I I think that um, the way Lean had been implemented there was causing product management to be frustrated with developers, and there was there was a bit of a, a battle there between development and, and product management. And that happened. I see that happen in places with strong engineering cultures. Google and Facebook are another example of that. Where like, I mean, for a long time, Facebook had no product management. Um, like. Uh, I know people who interviewed there and their barrier to the interview was not, are they good enough, but can they sell Facebook on the idea of product management? Um, and, and ultimately the people I know failed at that. They were unable to convince Facebook that product management was, and now that's changed. You know, it's been a couple of years, but mm-hmm. um, that, and then a CEO change led to sort of some, some seismic shifts. What's a cool topic that I wish we had more time to talk about maybe we could do another episode. maybe i'd love to have joshua on here he can do a much better version of this yeah, guests um and i think he uh i floated the idea the last time we worked a gig together so maybe maybe that can happen all right so we wrap up do we say um when we're on next yeah so um we are i don't have the date anymore is it the sixth it's it's next friday i believe it's the sixth sixth Let's say it's the seventh. No, that's a Saturday. Ah, your calendar's off by one. Uh, yeah, it's the sixth. Uh, we'll be back on same bat time, same bat channel. Um, Who are you? I'm Timothy Fitz at Timothy Fitz on Twitter. I'm Jeff Lindsay at Program on Twitter. Or SystemsLive.org, Mixler.com/slash/SystemsLive. If you sign up and then subscribe to us, you get an email whenever we go live, which is pretty cool. Uh, I know a bunch of you doing that, and it's it's helping us out a lot. These live shows have a, a small handful of live listeners, and then thousands more download it. Um, but the live listeners really really make the whole thing a lot more fun for us and, and interactive and interesting. And for those of you listening to the podcast, 
Um, you should totally hang out with us on the post show. We just sort of chit chat. Pre show or post show. Pre show or post show. A lot of cool stuff happens there that that doesn't come out on the podcast. Yeah, like spider people. And then stuff like spider people. Yeah, in addition to cool stuff. Uh, thanks for tuning in.